0: The Power Connect podcast is brought to you by Innowatts, powering the energy
1: transition with data. Aside from just the core economics, it's also an investor appetite. And when that became really, really pronounced to me was when we did a deal. It was actually a natural gas uh, gathering and processing deal that also had some pipelines, and we just killed it on the deal. We made far in excess of, of returns. We re- returned over a billion dollars back to investors just on that one deal when we sold it in 2019 so this is after the snowball for renewables is really taking off I thought I was going to get pats on the back and congrats and high fives from our investors for doing it and uh, the reaction from the majority of them was good job thanks for making us money we don't want you to do any more of these and so that told me this is not purely economic and this isn't where the puck's going the puck's going towards The renewable side in terms of investing. Welcome into the
0: Power Connect podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis, episode 44 of the program, rolling along on your Thursday. Look, we like every single episode that we put out, but I'd be lying if I told you there were some episodes that we like just a little bit more, and today is certainly one of those episodes. As we Welcome to the program Mr. Ahmad Atwan, CEO and founder of both Clean Energy Services as well as VC Fuel. He has been a decorated success in the oil and gas space, made his way over into clean tech and renewables just a couple years ago, and is doing a incredible job in that space in just a short amount of time. But of course, as you'll hear from him, when you've had the experience and you've got just the smarts and the know-how of a guy like a Mr. Ahmad Atwan, it is absolutely no surprise to anybody when you look at who he's been able to have as mentors across his early career. And then of course, what it has parlayed itself into when you talk about some of the heavyweights he's worked for, BlackRock and Morgan Stanley, just to name a few. But before we get to the rest of the episode with Mr. Atwan, let me tell you about my podcast partner, in a watch. Look, it's going to be an interesting winter to say the least energy markets are going to be as volatile as they've ever been and of course global instability and recession fears here at home certainly aren't making things easier so if you are in the retail energy space and or utility space how can you get a leg up how can you feel good about what you're doing forecasting wise getting insights from your customer and or obviously everybody's trying to reduce their carbon footprint as well so how can you do that Innovance has solutions for all three of those items plus more how well by leveraging insights from more than 45 million meters in markets across the world. Watts AI-powered platform delivers highly accurate power demand forecasts and intelligent insights allowing market participants to mitigate risk and of course maximize ROI. Inovacs responsive team of industry experts foster long-term and collaborative global partnerships providing robust and scalable solutions for the new energy economy and of course with everything going on in the renewable space, distributed energy resources and of course their bottoms up approach. Whether it's load forecasting, taking in DERs to consideration, or reducing your carbon footprint and trying to understand what your customers are doing, InnoWatts has wholesale solutions for you. So find out more about InnoWatts. Go follow them on LinkedIn, as well as you can also check out their website as well, InnoWatts.com. All right, let's get down to today's episode, Mr. Ahmad Atwan. CEO, founder of Clean Energy Services as well as VC Fuel. We talk about his career, the 20-year-plus oil and gas and now renewable energy venture that he's been on. And of course, we get into him working with James Baker and how that came about, his experience with both BlackRock and Morgan Stanley, his approach and strategy to working with CEOs and how he goes about trying to close deals. Uh, Also gets into kind of what that aha moment was when he realized, look, renewables are here to stay and they actually are going to be a player in this space. And then finally, We talk about labor, what Clean Energy Services is doing on that front to combat that crisis, as well as what's going on with the grid and transmission. How do you remedy that issue? Because again, without grid and transmission, dare I say, it's going to be a lot harder to get this energy transition off the ground if you don't have a fully functioning grid. I certainly enjoyed this interview. I know you will too. Please welcome to the program founder and CEO of both Clean Energy Services as well as VC Fuel, Mr. Ahmad Atwan.
1: By way of background, I was born in Kuwait, which actually informs a lot of what I did in in my uh, future career. Uh, As as many uh, listeners know, Kuwait is a petro state, and 99% of the economy until this day is dependent on oil. And so I grew up with the lens of how important energy is, because the the entire existence of the country I was growing up in was was dependent on energy. And so uh, After that, I I moved to Ohio um, because my mom's from there. My dad's from Kuwait. My mom's from Ohio. He's Jordanian-Kuwaiti, so I have a pretty interesting (laughs) mix of cultures there. Um, And then went on to, after college and grad school, focus on the energy industry, uh, really my entire career. So in grad school um, at Oxford, my thesis was about U.S.-Saudi relations and the economics of oil. I got really even further intrigued on an academic level about energy and what drives different countries to, to behave in different ways and, and that energy is at the center of, of almost everything. And so I, I thought this would be a really interesting industry to go into and to learn about. And so um, after finishing my, my grad degree, I actually had never been to Houston except for um, uh, an internship that I did in between my two years um, in grad school where I came to Houston to, to spend some time with Shell and actually to spend some time with James Baker, a former Secretary of State, okay. talking to him and about his perspectives on global diplomacy, but also on energy and also helping write a couple pieces on his behalf. Real quick, before you, what was that experience
0: like? I mean, because, you know, one thing when you meet folks, especially in, you know, that have had the success you've had, you know, along that journey, you meet really incredible figures. And obviously, James Baker is certainly one of those people. What was that experience like? And what kind of, how did, how did that kind of help you along your path?
1: Yeah, so the, the premise for me to, to meet uh, James Baker is he had come to speak at Oxford, and so I had met him there when I was in grad school. Then when I was writing my thesis, I wanted to get the U.S. viewpoint on the U.S.-Saudi relationship and economics of oil, and I asked for primary interviews with James Baker and he was kind enough, and this just tells you what kind of person he is, to, to give me the time, a lot oh, wow. of time, and give me his perspective, a lot of it off the record, <laughs> right. on on how, how he thought things, yeah, exactly, 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 exactly. So I could, uh, there was some stuff I was allowed to put on the record, some right. some stuff I was allowed to just talk about, but not attribute to him, and some sure. stuff that, no, it's not going in whatsoever, you know, over my dead body. So, exactly. um, and that category is usually the most fun. Oh, but absolutely. but to, to meet someone like him, who who uh, was a a lawyer for a a large part of his career for the energy industry, was was part of the energy industry, and then went on to become Undersecretary of the Treasury, Secretary of State. Secretary of the Treasury was uh, really uh, fascinating. And then uh, Chief of Staff as well. Uh, He had seen almost everything. He had seen the Gulf War. He had seen um, really how the geopolitics of energy works. And To me, to get wisdom from someone like that is invaluable, better than any school or any course you can take. Absolutely. uh, and really, in, in speaking uh, to him, that, that I kind of doubled down on my conviction that this is an industry that combines my two passions, which are economics and international relations. It's the most global industry. As we're seeing right now, what happens in places like Russia or the Ukraine or Saudi Arabia impact us as Americans and especially Europeans, where I just was. Yeah. And so that's where I really entered the industry from, from a very macro framework. And then I went much more micro over time as I started a couple of companies and then uh, worked for the, the two institutions you talked about.
0: So what would you say then kind of, you know, as you developed along this path, you knew energy was the spot, you were the place in the industry you wanted to be in. How did those, how did that interest either intensify, specify, and or just kind of grow throughout the course of these last, you know, 18, 20, 25 years you've been doing it?
1: Yeah, so it's 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 continually gotten more and more interesting um, uh, to me. Uh, the, when I entered, my first experience was with a company called Ultra Energy Technologies, and that was a company doing software for, and risk management for energy uh, trading firms as well as you know large uh, utilities and large power producers. And that was in the early two thousands. That so that was the heyday of of, of uh, Enron and 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 huge price spikes and instability in the system. And that just showed me how important, again, energy isn't just globally, but domestically here in the US. And we were the software provider to a lot of these companies, which is really interesting to to me because we got to see the technology behind what they were doing, and the emergence of what we now have, which is a much more automated industry today.
0: When did you find kind of your niche? What was it? What was the one job and/or the one position that you had, or maybe this you know, place you were at where you really felt like, okay, this is what I want to get into. This is kind of where you know I do my best work?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. So I would say the big uh, turning point for me was joining BlackRock in 2010. Okay. Uh, you know, BlackRock's the biggest asset manager in the world, at the time they had three trillion under management. now they have nine trillion. And so they, they wanted to start a private equity platform, and um, they, uh, they hired me to be the head of energy for the private equity platform, which was a tremendous opportunity because we were able to look at energy all the way from E&P to midstream to downstream, primarily hydrocarbons, although I did some renewable t- uh, deals as well. This was also the onset of the shale revolution. So one of my colleagues at BlackRock, Dan Rice, is, is a pioneer of the shale revolution. Mm-hmm. His, you know, his family... Uh, went on to to build rice energy sell it and now his son runs EQT which is the biggest natural gas Was oh, it Toby's? Yeah, Toby dad? Rice exactly. Okay. But, so Dan was, was was the you know Toby's dad was a, was a friend and a mentor to me at BlackRock and really helped uh, me understand where shale was going. You know, he was pounding he was pounding the table on the Marcellus Utica in 2007 before people were really paying attention. And so you know, it allowed us in our investment strategy then to be an early mover as well, because we're informed by a lot of the you know insight that he had yeah. into the marketplace and, and his network did. So what was great about BlackRock, you know, besides the infrastructure they provided us, is because this is the biggest asset manager in the world, you could literally get a meeting with anyone. So you get CEO of Exxon, you have your assistant call his assistant, say managing director of BlackRock coming to town, um, would like to get a meeting with you, they'll take the meeting because even though we were from the private side and we weren't making public company investments, they just see us as part of BlackRock, this company that generally is one of the top three shareholders of, of their entity. So it was an amazing way to network within the industry, to meet a lot of CEOs and management teams, and really to try to figure out where the industry was going and and to also find out where the really good deals were.
0: What did you learn the most professionally while you were at BlackRock?
1: Uh, what I learned the most professionally was that you really had to, when you were looking at deals in, in shale, um, you had to account for um, not only the quality of the rock and formations that you were going to drill or the quality of the, of the services that you were going to provide. The, you know, ultimately, it's a, it's a people-driven business and the management team is the most important part of, the, of your evaluation. If you have a great management team um, you'll, you're likely to succeed and you almost never succeed if you have a bad management team and so people became just a, even more of a theme and that's extended into uh, the renewables work that we're doing now i was gonna say you kind of you,
0: you hit on something there so i'm guessing and, and just from you know obviously in just the first 10 minutes of our conversation i mean just some of the names that you, some of the people you've had the you know the the fortunate luck to be around and help influence your career i mean obviously it's and obviously it's paid off in spades did that kind of set the tone then and a lot of those lessons you learned meeting with those ceos and obviously i'm guessing you know i mean look what you, yes you're with BlackRock, but at the same time too these guys are still ceos they still got egos right and yeah. so it's kind of like look what's your you know
1: give us your your value prop or get, what are you here for i mean how did the, what were those conversations like yeah, I tried to make them as, as uh, you know, two-way in nature as possible. Okay. Here's some stuff I can offer you. Here, here's some market intel I have. Here's, you know, we, we had tons of access to, to research, which they could access too, but I, I could tell them here the two most relevant pieces for you to read since you, Mr. CEO, don't have time to read, you know, 100 research reports. And, I, and and really just develop a nice rapport with them. I mean, the first meeting was never about, hey, I need to do a deal with you. It's just, you know, I just want to let you know who I am, yeah. uh, I want to share share stories, hear what your pain points are, things we can do together. And those type of relationships are, are that start as non-transactional relationships are the ones that usually lead to deals. The ones where you go and you say, hey, I heard you have uh, some acreage in, you know, the Haynesville, and I'd like to help you develop it. From me, from from day one, even if you're, you know, at a place like BlackRock, and it's um, that's what you offer up at the first meeting. I found that it generally doesn't go as well. You want to you want to build some rapport and some trust. So the meeting three, four, five, that's when you really talk about doing a deal. Because a lot of the art in doing deals is trying to keep them away from banker-run processes. And you want to have a bilateral deal where, let's say, the company is Chevron. You want to do it just with Chevron. You don't want to have to compete with fifty other. Yeah private equity firms for the deal that, that's run through an investment bank because that just makes it much more, not as much as a win-win uh, and, and usually uh, low, low returning.
0: So you're at BlackRock and then, uh, and then of course you, you made the move to Morgan Stanley. I'm guessing they poached you, if, uh, just if I'm, if I'm guessing. Yes, yet. yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so what's that conversation? And so again, I mean, you're rocking and rolling at BlackRock. What did Morgan Stanley offer you that you didn't already have other than a different opportunity?
1: Well, it was, at Morgan Stanley, the opportunity was um, was more focused on what they called um, infrastructure. So it was it was an okay. infra fund within private equity um, as, as a general space, and it was and there was a very large pool of capital to deploy, you know, over three funds, about twelve billion dollars, and it was focused on a space that I thought um, had the best risk reward at the time, which is the mostly the infrastructure midstream space. So whether it was midstream, gas, crude, NGLs, uh, we were doing deals to acquire uh, companies in those spaces um, and then try to improve them, add on to them, bring new customers on and then sell them. And we ended up doing that a few times, very successfully, you know, to the tune of m- much higher returns than our shareholders were um, or investors were, were expecting. The other part that I liked is that there were people on the team who had renewables expertise. Okay. And so that was kind of my first, opportunity to learn from people who had done uh, solar deals, wind deals. We'd even looked at the offshore Cape wind deal that never went anywhere, but we spent a couple years looking at it. There have been books written about it since then. And and at the time, we thought it was the death of offshore wind. And now offshore wind is becoming a huge thing again. So I got to see really the earlier evolution of the renewables industry uh, during my time at Morgan Stanley. And that really helped inform my next move after Morgan Stanley.
0: And this was in the what mid 2010s, 2015, 2016 somewhere in that Ballpark in exactly. Morgan Stanley. Yeah. So what was as a guy who had at that point whether academically, professionally had, you know, a, oodles of knowledge when it came to the oil and gas hydrocarbon business, what was your initial reaction and or feeling of the renewable space?
1: So I thought initially the, the renewable space is, is a is a subsidy driven you know government created almost space that wouldn't exist if you had a free market. And so I was very skeptical of the renewable space early on. I thought the space was trying to accomplish, which is you know among, among the many things I think it is going to accomplish are further energy security, uh, different ways to create jobs uh, in, in the United States. I thought there were there were many positive aspects to it, but I thought, we were basically engaging in regulatory capture and making money based on the fact that there were um, subsidies, tax credits um, for all the areas that we were looking to invest in. So that was my initial reaction as an oil and gas person, saying uh, almost, hey, is this really fair? Those guys get a bunch of subsidies and the guys on the other side don't. Yeah. And then I realized it was more nuanced than that, and I can, I can get into that.
0: So tell us about uh, when that. Attitude started to change, and how you know you decide. You know, obviously you're at Morgan Stanley, but then again, at some point, I'm guessing. All right, when did that? You're, you're already, obviously you got an entrepreneurial mind. When did that push to let's go start my own deal? Let's start branching out, and then of course again, the oil and gas guy decides. Let's let's uh, let's branch out into the renewable space.
1: One thing that happened is partly due to government support, but really partly due to just technology improvements and and lowering on the technology cost curve, over time, the two biggest pillars of renewables right now, which are wind and solar, became actually competitive. And as as you may know right now, solar in many cases is much cheaper than natural gas as a power source. So as I saw that, and I'm at at my heart a a free market economist, and so uh, when we started looking at solar deals and saying, wow, you know, the power is cheaper. Uh, these are actually more interesting deals than they used to be before and they don't require government uh, subsidies or tax credits Um, but if they have the tax credits that makes them even more competitive we started realizing that this is a real space it's it's here to stay regardless of your politics regardless of what you think of you know oil and gas versus renewables this is going to be a key component of the equation the second thing that happened is our investors started telling us what they want and just to give you an example of that at Morgan Stanley and BlackRock, our investors were generally pension funds, university endowments in, in the, in, in, you know, of the best universities in the, U, in the U.S., um, and then global players like sovereign wealth funds. And one thing we started hearing as I was fundraising and meeting with them in the 2015, 2016, it just became the trend was first gradual, 2015, 2016, then it just snowballed, 17, yeah. 18, 19. Our investors were telling us hey, we want you to do these renewables deals. We want you to do more of them. You're unbalanced in terms of too much oil and gas and not as much renewables. Uh, it, it, I, so it's not universal that all of our investors said that, right. but it was a majority. Yeah. And they had, different investors had different reasons for it. The Europeans are very into you know, climate change, and they, a lot of them said, we're no longer investing in oil and gas. Uh, a lot of the American investors said, we want to diversify. We're really heavy you know, oil and gas, and we've, we've benefited from, from shale in many cases. But... We want you to diversify into other energy sources. And so for, for a confluence of reasons, we were hearing from our investors, is that what they want, that's what they want. And the reason that's important is that in private equity or investing in general, people assign different multiples to different industries, right? So if investors are telling you for various reasons, some of which are purely economic, some of which aren't, that they're just gonna pay more for things that you make that have to do with solar, wind, storage, or whatever the renewable uh, aspect is versus oil and gas, you want to direct your dollars more to that because you're just going to get a higher return for the same amount of cash flow, right? (laughs) let's say you make a million dollars in cash flow, investors may pay 15 to 20 times that for renewables, and they may pay three to five times that for oil and gas. So aside from just the core economics, It's also an investor appetite. And when that became really, really pronounced to me was when we did a deal. It was actually a natural gas uh, gathering and processing deal that also had some pipelines. And we just killed it on the deal. We made far in excess of of returns. We returned over a billion dollars back to investors just on that one deal when we sold it in 2019. So this is after the snowball for renewables is is, is really taking off. I thought I was going to get pats on the back and good grads and high fives from our investors for doing it and uh, the reaction from the majority of them was good job thanks for making us money we don't want you to do any more of these and so that told me this is not purely economic and this isn't where the puck's going the puck's going towards the renewable side in terms of investing and I'd already done a couple of renewables deals so And I already knew I wanted to start a company. At one point, it could have been an oil and gas investment company. But, you know, with I hope, you know, 20, 25 years left in my career, I I, I want to go into something that is very growth oriented, where a lot of investors want to be. Not to say that's not oil and gas. I think some incumbents are going to do great in that area. But I just thought for me, for someone who uh, who is always intellectually curious, wants to learn a new area anyway and who wants to do something that's going to make a lot of money for investors, the way to go is to go into the renewables universe.
0: So here we are now, 2022. um, And, you know, the thing I... And look, I've done 170 of these episodes, right? Podcasts as far as, you know, in the renewable, oil and gas, energy space. And it's such a nascent industry right now, right? Like, I mean, and, and, you know, we get so caught up in... And And, you know, part of it's just a function of where we are as a society right now, where it's you know, it's us against them depending on what you're into. But you know i'm 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 in the same boat as you where it's like, look, I'm a big believer that we need both, right? Renewables and oil and gas. Um, but at the same time too, like, we still need, there's still a, I feel like there's still a lot we don't know about renewables yeah right And yeah. so I think that's kind of this idea where you know to your point you see what's going on in Russia and Ukraine you see right now that yes we still do need battery storage. in your mind right now, what is the most exciting aspect outside of the growth potential because we already know that And then what's one of the more frustrating aspects of it when it comes to renewables and some of the conversations you have with either you know investors and/or family members around the dinner table?
1: Yeah, so the the most exciting aspect of the renewables industry to me is we've seen enough technology breakthroughs um, in solar, wind, and especially in battery storage that we now see a path over the next few years to, to have renewables be a baseload power source. And that ends up being an absolute game changer, right? The, the only argument really against renewables now, given that they've become very low cost, is hey, they don't run 24-7. Sure. You know, the, the, the sun shines during the day, the wind blows at night, but it doesn't always blow and the sun isn't always shining. So we need a backup source of power whenever we do anything for our society. Uh, and that backup right now is becoming, you know used to be coal and now it's predominantly natural gas. And I still think natural gas will be needed for many years in the future. The missing element that bridges the gap in renewables and makes it 24-7 is battery. And that's something we're spending a lot of time um, analyzing and investing in and we're also uh, through another component of our business we're servicing uh, battery customers and so we're learning a lot about the battery value chain and it's made me really optimistic about where renewables are going both globally and in this country the IRA you know Infl- Inflation Reduction Act bill which I don't think it'll reduce uh, inflation but that's how they uh, they named it is, is gives the first standalone tax credit to, to standalone battery storage, which was a game changer for batteries it was the only one that didn't have tax credits. And then you have domestic content requirements, which means a lot of these batteries now have to be made in the United States. So even if you're a Korean firm that wants to uh, make batteries, it's better to make them here with domestic content. So all those tailwinds, uh, plus just the technology innovation that's happening in the space and the amount of R&D that's going into it, are uh, allowing our batteries to be longer and longer duration. And more robust, mm-hmm. and we can see a world now in the next five to six years where renewables become a baseline power source. So that to me is incredibly exciting.
0: Because that's what has to happen, though, right? I mean, yes. it needs to be
1: dispatchable. And exactly. That's
0: kind of the issue right now. I know from uh, being at the NEMA conference, and um, you know, one of the MISO execs was there talking, and you know, he said, "Listen, the problem is that you know you've got what seventy thousand megawatts coming off." Uh, of generation that's going to be gone by 2030 and I think the biggest battery as he pointed out it was, was uh, right now is what 425 megawatts right yeah. and he goes is, there, you know, is the technology going to catch up fast enough between now and 2030 and obviously again you're, you've got boots on the ground what does your gut tell you right now?
1: I think the technology will, will catch up fast enough but I also think then there's going to be uh, an aspect of, of supply chain and volume to be able to get that in the market even if you have the right technology because wind and solar especially solar are growing so fast batteries continually trying to catch up mm-hmm. in terms of just the amount that you put, can put into the ground to actually make the solar base load i mean one one stat that uh that came out of um, wood you know one of the best energy consultancies is that after the ira bill they redid their numbers the installed solar base, which is already a gigantic industry, is going to triple in the next, um, is it, sorry, double in the next three years. And then from three to six years, double again after that. Mm-hmm. So you just have, not only do you have to have the right technology, you have to have the volume of the of, of, of batteries to serve it. So you have to have the volume of raw materials, whether it's a lithium, a cobalt, nickel, or many of the raw materials that go into it. You have to have the manufacturing capacity. You have to have, you're really creating... Like one of the world's largest industries uh, to serve an industry that's also growing like at breakneck speed so i I think i think that's going to be one of the one of the bigger issues is just physically how much of this can we do and how fast and i know just from talking to folks in this space
0: that and, and being at conferences and to your point kind of the one aspect that we kind of forget about is the labor yeah. aspect, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, yeah it's we, we need all of this, but do we have, and, and you would have never thought in 2022 we'd be asking this, but do we have the manpower and, or do we have the manpower that wants to do it, yeah. right? Um, and so is that something that, you know, folks are factoring into? Is that kind of the, you know, the elephant in the room, so to speak, when it comes to that's this? A, that's a
1: great question. So, so we're on the front lines of this um, through our one of our uh, VC infrastructure companies, called Clean Energy Services, what we do is we provide services to wind, solar, and battery. Mm-hmm. And when you're providing services, you know, our, our goal is to be the, the Schlumberger of the renewable services space, which is a very modest goal, but we it's think it's a great, it's a great goal it's, to have. Exactly. <laughs> um, but but when we're providing services, just like in oil field services, it's a mix of the two most important things by far, people and technology, mm-hmm. right? Technology continually improves, but you still need the people. You still need the people out in the field to to actually physically service the batteries, to physically uh, uh, check um, the sites, uh, to physically, especially in the wind business, um, you know, there's, there's no technology automation that can repower a wind turbine, which means kind of take it down and replace it with a new one. Yeah. And so we're, we're in the front lines of this in that we're doing all that work. We're, we're, we're implementing technology, but at the same time, we're trying to hire enough people for the projects we have with with huge companies like GE, yeah. that need labor that's skilled enough to do this, and there's a shortage. It's not, and it's not just a short term shortage. I think it's going to be a long term shortage, and so one of our challenges is how do you retain the labor, how do you make the labor, um, and the and, and and you know the team members feel like they're long term, you know, aligned with your vision and long term employees, long term partners, and that's something we're really working hard at. We're um, one thing we're doing is we're partnering with uh, Houston Community College to sponsor a wind technician program. Yeah. So they'll churn out 100 wind technicians a year, and we'll take those wind technicians after having sponsored them, and we'll put them out in the field. You know, one, one stat that you may have heard but that was interesting to me is the two fastest growing jobs in America right now are wind technician, which I think is over 100%. And solar installer, which is near 100%, annual growth rate. Yeah. And that's projected over many years. So it's going to keep doubling every year. Sure. So, and, and look, you know, and, and I think part of it is, and,
0: and again, one of, one of the biggest hurdles right now as I see it, and, and look, whether it's EVs, whether it's wind power, solar power, and really just the renewable sector as, a, as, as an industry, it's just an educational factor right I mean I I just think that there's a lot of folks and that's one of the things that and look I'm you know it's why I bring you know people that are a lot smarter than me on this show like you on to help educate folks because outside of the energy space and let's call it what it is there's a lot of people in the energy space that aren't necessarily kind of you know up to date and up to snuff on what's going on especially in the renewable side of things how do we get people to care
1: well I think how we get people to care is that I think so. there's some broad going back to my macro background, there are some things that renewables will really benefit as Americans, all of us uh, long term. Number one is energy resiliency. If you have integrated renewables sectors that, that you know, power key industries and power cities that combine, again, you know wind and solar with battery. If you have other industries like a vibrant green hydrogen industry, that helps power power plants or uh, forklifts or many different applications You're, you're creating kind of a moat around your energy industry to make it resilient in the ultimate sense that you're not reliant on anyone else around the world you're relying just on yourself and your own domestic talent and manufacturing capacity and everything you have. And that's what the IRA bill that passed this summer was done to encourage. I think if, if people see this less as a us versus them, but a this is a key component of us becoming truly energy independent, creating tons of jobs. We, there'll always be, in our lifetimes, an oil and gas industry that's vibrant, but this is, gonna, this is gonna be work together with the oil and gas industry to make us truly resilient. I think that's a mission that all Americans can pull for together, right? So I was in, in Europe last week there, it's the definition of, of, of energy vulnerability and fear. The number one topic of conversation from the cab drivers that I had to the executives that I met with was, are we going to have heating this winter? Right? Are we going to actually wow. be able to, to heat our families? And especially when you go into the middle and lower classes. So if we're trying to you know, have a vibrant middle class in our country, we keep getting reminded every several years that energy is critical. You know, one of the reasons I originally wanted to do energy is I, I, I like what I call kind of base level industries, which are industries that without, without them, we wouldn't be able to function well as a society. So to me, water, agriculture, energy, those are the, those are the three things you need. Yeah. Without them, you can't function. You won't have a high tech sector. You won't have an automotive sector. And so you saw what happened in uh, 2021 in February, exactly. You know when
0: when Uri hit, (laughs) uh, all three of those things compounded at one time. Exactly. You know I deal with. Look, I talk to renewable folks. I talk to oil and gas people. And you just touched on it just a second ago. Is that you know it can't be this us against them, but it feels like. And just with some of the folks I've talked to, I mean, I, I spoke to a gentleman in the clean space who told me point blank, my whole goal is to get rid of fossil fuels and make put fossil fuel companies out of business and make them a feedstock. Okay, if a oil and gas person said that about renewables, they'd be, you know, you don't care about the planet, da 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 da. You've got a unique background because again, you spent twenty plus years in the oil and gas space, so you know it intimately. And now here you are in the clean space. Where do you fall in the, how do we bring this together? Because it's going to take both. And how would Ahmad Atwan, you know, diplomatically or have this kumbaya, how do we have this kumbaya moment or at least let folks know, look, we need to be locked in arms for a little while because that's the only way this thing's going to work.
1: No, that's a great question. I, th- I, think, I think it really happens um, uh, through leadership at the okay. top. So... So, we're starting to see on both sides of this, and this shouldn't be both sides because it really is just one energy industry, but it seems to, you know, many people try to paint it as renewables versus oil and gas. And on both sides, we're seeing on the oil and gas side, we're seeing leadership of companies, you know, the CEOs and, and senior execs of companies like Chevron and Oxy say, look, we're we believe in oil and gas, but we also believe in the energy transition. We're going to invest a ton of money in it. And we're going to buy companies that, that help in it, whether they're renewable fuels companies or in, in Chevron's case or in Oxy's case, you know, carbon capture companies, direct air capture. And so they're coming to the table and saying, hey, we're willing to talk to anyone about yeah. this because we think it's it's crucial to our uh, future. The European oil companies even, even more so The Shell just promoted as their as their new CEO about 10 days ago. A guy who ran their renewables division, sure. right? Not the guy who ran in upstream. Yeah, so that yeah. tells you where the other thing. Then on the renewable side, the renewable side really needs to start thinking about how do we integrate into the current energy system. In some areas, yes, it makes sense to disrupt it, but in, my, in other areas, it may it makes sense to work with it, right? How do uh, how do how do wind, solar, and storage work with the natural gas industry? What can the renewables community do and, and the leadership of the renewables companies do to partner with and actually become customers of, or, or vice versa, of the energy companies. And I think you see now renewable CEOs starting to do that. You know, when if, if, if Chevron or BP is starting a renewable division, they're starting to, dis- to have discussions with the next eras of the world who are, you know, is, is, the, is, the, is the U.S. Um, leader in renewable in terms of, you know, just size of uh, asset base and market cap. I think they're starting to realize they need to have this across-the-board conversation because it benefits both sides. So it's not a winner-take-all scenario. Both sides can, can succeed. Uh, the one subtlety I would say, though, in, in this is, and this is investor-driven, is my belief is that current incumbents in oil and gas will do really well. They have the installed bases. They have the production capacity. They have uh, runway for growth. And the current renewables guys are just you know we're super excited. We're we're completely uh, well positioned. We just have to execute because we have so many tailwinds in terms of growth ahead of us. But in terms of new entrants, I think it's going to be much easier to be a new entrant into the renewable space just because you have the growth and the tailwinds. It's an industry that's growing, depending on the space, between twenty and fifty percent a year, as opposed to oil and gas. It's growing you know one to two percent a year. So it'll be, as a, if you're an entrepreneur, it's a lot easier to, to enter uh, renewables and I think a lot easier to, to, to make money in it than, than it is in oil and gas. And oil and gas, if you're already in it, I think you can do really well because you're in the installed base, you've already spent the capbacks, you've done everything. But to enter it, I think it's very challenging.
0: Tell us a little bit, you talked a little bit about clean energy services, VC fuel, VC infrastructure, tell us a little bit about that and then how, you know, again, what has your oil and gas background kind of instilled and or fueled, pun intended, to get this thing rocking and rolling? Because obviously you guys have had some, uh, you know, early touchdowns, I guess, to borrow, a, uh, to borrow a football phrase.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. That's my favorite, favorite sport by far. <laughs> Go Buckeyes. But the um, so, yeah, just, just to explain um, our structure, we have two uh, main business uh, businesses. One is VC Fuel which is a venture capital business. And what we do is we invest in other clean energy businesses, and they can be across the board uh, from hydrogen to renewable natural gas to carbon capture to all the other areas I mentioned. And in these cases, we're investing in, in companies that are growing, but generally on the smaller side. And we're taking a minority position, taking a board seat, and helping them really uh, uh, grow further by providing them with business support, commercial support. Um, And in in many cases, these companies have underlying technology risk that we're taking a bet on. So in this space, we've invested in uh, a renewable natural gas company, a hydrogen company, energy efficiency, which is a very interesting area, energy efficiency play for building efficiency, which is a huge area of of potential savings in terms of energy. And we've backed, uh, generally, what, we, what I've learned from my private equity background is we've backed, it's, it's a people business, back the best uh, C- CEOs and management teams and, and CTOs with the best track records who really align with your vision. So that's one side of the house. The other side of the house is VC infrastructure. And in that side, we actually found businesses and, and backed businesses ourselves from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And in that side the way we come with up with those ideas is we realize through our VC business, VC fuel business, that there are some things that no one's doing yet that are really important or that no one's doing really well mm-hmm. that are really important. So we can't find a team to back it. Why don't we just found it ourselves? Yeah. So our first business example in VC infrastructure is CES, clean energy services. And again, that's the one that we aim to be the, uh, the, the, the Schlumberger of, of, of clean energy. And when you to go back to your question, to how is your oil and gas background informed what you do? What we love about this business is it's not a a business that is going to see you know returns or even revenues in three, four, five years. It's a services business that, from a couple months after founding, we were able to win big customer contracts from uh, from you know, leading customers like GE, which is really the number one manufacturer in renewables. Uh, for wind. And we're able to generate cash flow relatively early on by providing just great services for operations and maintenance to our customers. And that's, again, where I think the the oil and gas part comes. As I like to think about in oil and gas, people always think about cash flow and and EBITDA, especially today. Whereas in renewables, people are thinking about just growing revenues at all costs, Mm -hmm. right? And so we bring a little bit more of an oil and gas mentality towards evaluating companies a little bit deeper diligence on the technical aspects on the venture capital side so the vc fuel side and much more of a focus on cash generation businesses on the vc infrastructure side and i think that as a result our platforms are a little bit lower risk but they're also have a very good chance of returning three four five times your money
0: you mentioned batteries already as something that you guys, you know, that, that you're very excited about. What's the, um, you know, we talked about carbon capture as well. Carbon capture kind of gets a bad rap depending upon who you're talking to because it hasn't been profitable yet. And some folks are saying it's just a, you know, it's a scheme for oil and gas folks. But again, that's something that, you know, you guys have talked about. Where where are we at as as it pertains to carbon capture?
1: I would say of all the spaces we've looked at, and we've, we did a deep dive on car- carbon capture, mm-hmm. it's been hard for us to find something that's investable. Sure. Um, because we think ultimately that the power lies with the big emitters, right? Okay. And, and with the IRA and, and the, the, the new um, you know, renewable bill that came out, one of the bigger tailwinds you now have is the tax credit, the 45, what they call the 45Q tax credit, has significantly increased for carbon capture which is fantastic but the person who ca- captures that tax credit is the emitter themselves and so we're not the emitter we're, we're trying to solve around the emitter the areas you could potentially solve for are transporting the carbon after it comes out mm-hmm. um, of the of the emission source so whether it's a an oil refinery or a petrochemical plant Capturing it and then transporting it. And then I think there could be some promising areas around the storage piece. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of teams that are trying to figure out, and these are ex- energy management teams in many cases, just like if you were doing enhanced oil recovery, how would you store carbon either for enhanced oil recovery or just store it kind of forever, which is how you capture the 45 Qs. I don't think it's going to be that easy for a small new entrants to make a lot of money in this space. Because I think it's more of a a big infrastructure play between capturing, um, then piping, which requires big pipelines, and then sequestering carbon, which is probably the place where there would be the most opportunity for smaller companies.
0: We'll start winding this thing down. Uh, look, without you know the, the, the one um, caveat you need when you have energy is transmission and, and the grid. Where's uh, where, where exactly does uh, VC fuel and where where's a mod at on uh, the, the the grid and transmission?
1: That's a great question. So I I think probably the biggest vulnerability, the thing that hasn't been addressed as much yet, is the is the grid. You know, our grid we we haven't tested. The grid, to the extent that we're going to test it in the next two to three to four years, is all this new renewable generation coming online and generation mixes, and new storage, standalone storage. I think where I stand is there needs to be a lot more investment in it. And the you know, like I said, I'm not necessarily for big government spending, but it's I think um, interesting that in the infrastructure bill, which is two billion dollars, and the IRA, which is you know over five hundred billion dollars. So $2, $2.5 trillion total, there was not sufficient investment in really upgrading our transmission grid. And that's not something that just a couple companies can achieve. That's a, right. that's a national initiative. Now, I do know of some, some companies that are trying to build their own high-voltage uh, transmission lines to get the wind from the Midwest and center of the country uh, up to places like Chicago or the East or the West Coast and those guys are you know they're doing the lord's work but it takes a ton of time a ton of permitting and and no one has enough capital to solve the problem it is a national issue so who knows maybe there's going to be another bill where they include transmission in as a centerpiece unfortunately my guess is we're going to have to learn the hard way Uh, and, and things are going to happen that are unforeseen the transmission grid kind of breaks down we have uh, you know, unfortunately, another or worse, yuri type event in Texas or something in California. And then eventually there'll be a wake-up call. Because as we've seen in a lot of parts of our society and economy, it's only after the disaster happens that people realize the they need to solve banks. the problem. Yeah, exactly. exactly.
0: What's the one thing right now, outside of what you're doing VC fuel-wise, that you're keeping an eye on in the entire energy sector that kind of maybe it gives you pause but just as something that you like to keep your 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 hand on the pulse of
1: the biggest thing that gives us pause is like i said earlier to, to go full circle battery is the key missing element okay. um, of, of solving uh, resiliency and renewables because um, uh, they'll be intermittent until you can have battery life and batteries is sophisticated enough to have um, uh, base load power and to get enough batteries installed you need to go through interconnection queues which have to do with the transmission grid again to, to your point and those queues are becoming very very long and it's taking much longer to implement them so even if you have government support and even if technology is getting better if you actually can't implement projects it could ha- have potential to cause the renewable industry growth to go a little bit sideways. And so the biggest concern I have is catastrophic events happening on power grids, either in ERCOT or in CAISO in California, or in PJM in some major areas, and then public overreactions to them in the wrong way, right? rather than measured reactions of, okay, how do we really solve this? What's missing to your point? more investment in transmission. Um, I, you know, what, one thing that's interesting is we had a URI and there wasn't that much more investment in transmission after. I mean, that's so, so we could have another URI easily, right? So and so, so we're, we're basically hoping that the weather events, uh, uh, you know, that we don't have any spiky weather events in the future, which is based on at least the recent past. You know, this summer was what had the most, uh, in, th- this last summer in ERCOT had the most individual, what they call kind of a, above peak, Predicted uh, day rates in terms yeah. of electricity, in terms of temperature. Um, and then we had the year before. I mean, I think it's unlikely that in the next five years we don't have any more extreme events. And those are going to continue to test the grid more and more. And the more uh, production we bring onto the grid, the more fragile the grid becomes. Well, the 100-year weather events are now becoming yearly. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? and, exactly. And, and
0: and again, it's just, it, it, you know, it makes for great political football, but the problem is is that the everyday consumer is the one that's kind of hamstrung in
1: all of this. Exactly. Exactly. So, what you know, another way to put it is we don't want to become Europe. Europe is now completely dependent on, on Russia for gas. It doesn't have a robust enough re- renewable or gas industry. Um, they've messed up a lot of things policy-wise, and they weren't able to— Contingency plan. We have the luxury of, you know, in Texas, um, uh, I say is the luckiest energy state in in not only the country but the luckiest energy region in the world. We have the most oil. We have the most gas. We have by far the most wind, and we're going to overtake California in solar. So, we have all this resource. Yeah. We just need to harness it in the right way to make sure that we, as consumers are actually benefiting from this is with really low-cost energy, which is one of the things that should differentiate us from anywhere in the world.
0: Thank you so much for that, Mr. Ahmad Atwan. You can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as the website, thepowerconnect.net. If you listen to us on Apple, and we know a lot of you do, leave us a five-star rating and listen to the entire podcast, or as much as you can. Well, we like to think that you listen to the whole thing, because we like to think we do a pretty good job. But when you do it, it helps with the algorithm, and you know that is always important look we've got some great episodes coming up very excited about what we got coming up this weekend a little sunday special if you will with mr matt de lorenzo an inexpensive guide to buying an ev very interesting conversation with mr matt de lorenzo and of course he's a 30-year automotive scribe so great input there plus he just gives you good information about evs as a whole uh whether you've got a, a big bank account or not good insight on what makes sense for an EV buyer. We've also got a great conversation coming up next week with the folks from MD Energy Advisors, uh, Jason Schwarzenberg and Phil Krosky, just two absolutely... Tremendous human beings Shout out to my girl Jamie Levin for helping set that up And of course we've got a slew of guests coming up That you do not want to miss out on those So shout out as always to the entire audience My folks over at Innowatts, And everybody that listens to the program Without you doing what you do We couldn't do what we do This has been the Power Connect Podcast Connecting the energy transition One conversation at a time Wake up Builders' time to build a new land I know we could do it If we all lend a hand The only thing we have to do